burdening somebody, you're taking away somebody, you're giving somebody the opportunity to serve. And if they can't do it, they'll just tell you they can't do it. But maybe they can, and maybe they'll actually, like I think most of us enjoy doing it and feel like, hey, this is an opportunity for me to give of myself. It makes me feel good. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am thrilled to share with you an outstanding guest who's got a story that is powerful and knowledge that is relevant. His name is Mark Monchek, and he's the founder and chief opportunity officer of the Opportunity Lab, a strategy consulting firm focused on conscious growth. Mark has worked with leaders from Google, Apple, J.P. Morgan Chase, General Electric, Goldman Sachs, Adorama, Feltzberg, the New York Times, Warden School of Business, New York University, Columbia University, NBC, Time Warner, and the United Nations. He's the author of the Amazon bestseller, Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business in an Age of Disruption, and that has never been more relevant than now. He's also been featured in Real Leaders, The Better Business Book, The Organizational Development Review Journal, Lifetime Network, Newsday, Working Women Magazine, The San Francisco Chronicle, and is a frequent guest on top podcasts in the Conscious Building community. Mark, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, Dr. Richard. I'm excited to be here, and I love what you're doing with The Daily Helping, and we have so much in common, so I'm ready to share whatever we can with your audience today. Well, I appreciate that. This is one that I've kind of circled on the calendar for a while when I saw it pop up, and especially when I learned about all the cool things that you're doing. So we're going to talk about a lot, but what I really want to do is jump into your your backstory, your why, and find out you know your your superhero origin story because it's powerful and people need to hear it. So let's let's talk about it and flash back to that kind of seminal moment for you. Well, Richard, I grew up at the intersection of business, psychology, and art. So my mother was a Holocaust survivor who just barely escaped the Holocaust at the age of 15, came to the United States. My father was a psychiatrist who, because of the Jewish quota, had to go and study in Austria. And then when Hitler invaded uh, Austria, he had to go in 1938 to uh, Basel, Switzerland to get his degree and came back to the United States. So my mother was an artist, father was a doctor, a psychiatrist, and everybody else in my family were entrepreneurs. So I grew up fascinated with the psychology and art of entrepreneurship. Why do some entrepreneurs succeed and others not? Why do some succeed, but they get to a plateau and they can't go any further? Why are some happy and unsuccessful or happy and successful and all the different permutations of those different factors? 
So as I grew up, I was really um, interested in how the different lineages of my parents and their ancestors uh, kind of influenced me. <clears throat> so in your in your TED talk, which I listened to a couple of times, you know, you came to the idea that everybody finds their purpose in life at, at different points, you know, in their life. And some people are born with it, but most people find it out, I think, through a crisis. I think most people are very wanting to be habituated to their creature comforts. You know, we're all liking our comfort zone. We're all liking stability today, particularly more than ever with the unstable world. So the first crisis that I had was when my parents got divorced. I figured out, well, what am I going to do? My parents are going in totally different directions. And very few people have had my experience. My parents never, ever once talked to each other about their two children for the rest of their lives. Probably the most traumatic thing that I think ever happened to me. So what that did for me was it helped me understand the importance of forgiveness, the importance of staying in communication no matter what's happening in your life, particularly because of your children. So I went on to study psychology and got a master's degree in clinical social work, went on to get a fellowship in psychoanalytic studies, and used that mostly to work with entrepreneurs to help them figure out how to grow their business. In particular, what are the belief systems that were holding them back from their childhoods or their social influence or their schooling or the cultural influence on them to help them become the best version of themselves that they could possibly be? So I've been studying you know, how belief systems affect entrepreneurs, artists, activists, because my parents were all of those things. And in 1981, when my wife and I were first married, our dream was to buy a house, live in it, and raise children in it. And we did. We bought this beautiful Victorian house in Midwood, Brooklyn. Six days after we moved in, someone lit a match, threw gasoline under the back door of the house, and lit it up and set it on fire. It was an arson fire reasons of which I won't go on to the show because it's a long story, but we came back to our house uh, that night and seeing water pouring through the front porch, smoke throughout the whole neighborhood, six fire trucks in front of that house. Obviously, we're both devastated. My wife was horrified by looking at that. I didn't know what to say, but I looked at her in the eyes. I put my arms around her. And I said, now you can have the kitchen you always wanted. Mm. I didn't know what else to say. I mean, I was devastated myself, but I, I, I think that's the kind of DNA of my family, that whether it's the Holocaust or whether it's being prevented from studying medicine in the United States, there's always some way you can make some tragedy into something better. So we, we were waiting for the insurance. We had boarded up the house. And in the next three weeks, vandals came in and they stole stained glass windows. They stole four hand car fireplace mantles and everything else that wasn't nailed down. So we moved back to this house to save our home, to save our lives with no heat, no hot water, uh, no electricity, no alarm system. And that was one of those things that happened to you. But I learned over the years, Richard, that it happened for me because I learned the power of kindness, kindness of strangers, of people who I didn't even know who lived next door. We just moved in just a few days ago who helped us out in ways we could never imagine. And I understood the power of what we now call the Opportunity Lab, the resource ecosystem, that everything you need to do whatever you need to do lies within you, whether it be your heart, your head, but also in the community outside of you, whether it be your friends, your family, your colleagues, your associates, your neighbors. 
So in the course of the next months, we got all the help that we needed just from the generosity of strangers, as well as our family coming in to live with us, to be able to rebuild that house in a better way than it ever would, would have before. So I learned the fact that material things, they don't really mean very much. I think everybody is renting everything that we have. We think we own something, but when somebody tries to burn your house down and break in and steal just about everything, you realize you don't really own anything except for your own heart and the love you have and the people that care about you. So through that year and a half of rebuilding, I founded my first company, which is called the Center for Life Resources, to help other people learn what I learned about getting the resources you need from within yourself, within the community of people around you. Then fast forward to the next significant tragedy in 2008, as the economy was just going into the tank and burning up, uh, I had $100,000 stolen from my business by somebody who's working for me. And I went into a very, very deep, dark depression, something that I just could not get out of with, that, with all the medication and the very various help that I had. And I, I wound up in a hospital, almost lost my life, but I came back and I woke up and the word gratitude came to me. I was grateful for what I had and the fact that people were still with me, helping me get to the next level. And the next word that came to me was opportunity. That there was an opportunity in this depression to see that even though I thought I was not attached, obviously when somebody steals money from you going through a depression, you still have an attachment that I didn't even realize that, I, that was still there. So that's where the Opportunity Lab was born. That was the origin story of it. And I started to see the companies in that 2008 recession that were rising were companies that were filling a need in the marketplace and that were resilient and willing to shift their models. You know, or in companies that were just starting, like Uber, like Airbnb, like Etsy, companies like Facebook that were only a few years old, companies that were stagnant, that were stiff, that would not respond. Companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, AIG and the various different banks of Blockbuster, Research in Motion, which had the BlackBerry, you know, the Nokia, which was the largest handset maker in the world. All these companies were going down, while companies that were seeing an opportunity and serving customers in a different way were, were rising. And as I came out of that and started to learn about my purpose, really was to serve companies that wanted to grow consciously and grow because they deeply care about their customers, their employees, and the communities that they serve. So these are two different tragedies that actually became things that happened for me. While when they happened at the time, I thought they were happening to there is so much to unpack in all of that. And, but I think the things that I want to focus on are, you said the two words after, you know, you, you got close to, to death there in the hospital, gratitude and opportunity. And you said that you realized that things happen through you, not to you. And in psychology, as you know, because you've got those degrees, we, you know, we talk about an external locus of control versus an internal locus of control. And, and you know, research has showed again and again that people with an internal locus of control generally tend to be happier, successful than those that don't. So when that switch flipped for you, talk to us about some of the things you started doing with the Opportunity Lab and how you turned that into to what it's doing today. Because it's not just, you, you were very clear that the, the lab is about conscious growth. And I think we're more cognizant of that in 2020. But in 2008, that wasn't a really big movement at all. 
it was still all about the bottom line. So I, I would love to hear about how the Opportunity Lab grew and was and was fleshed out over the years. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I think it started with this idea that I had to let go of any attachment that I had to status, to how people saw me. I don't think I was incredibly attached to money in the way that I didn't need to make zillions of dollars, but I was attached to the money representing the status symbol. And when I got disabused of that attachment and realized that my purpose was really to serve companies in the best possible way, and whatever revenue we earned came out of that service, that really shifted the, you know, the model and really finding companies that wanted to be of service themselves, that wanted to be conscious in the way they treated their employees, their customers, and the communities that they do business in, attracting those companies and helping them shift their belief that you can have conscious profit if you operate in a conscious way. What do I mean by conscious? Considering that you have stakeholders that you're dependent on, giving customers transparent information about what you're offering them, giving them the best possible product and service that you can, understanding what their needs are, serving their needs rather than to getting convincing them to buy something that they don't necessarily need or want. It's asking your employees, what do they want to be successful at your company? And giving them the trust that they can be able to make some decisions on their own and not necessarily be micromanaging everything that they do. And now, since mid-March, since COVID's hit, our clients have seen a miraculous experience that they never believed that their employees could operate so independently, working remotely in their own homes, and actually delivering even more to their employers than they ever could, because in some ways they had more freedom, and also without commuting and without having to go to extra meetings or, or you know, worrying about putting on a good face in the company, they were at, unleashed to do things that they couldn't have done before. As I hear that, I know that's resonating with a lot of people right now. So if you're a small business, even a, even an employee of one, even if you're a solopreneur and you're listening to this and you're saying, yeah, yes, I mean, I've had to shift in a lot of ways because of COVID, we all have. Talk to us about really how to build, what's the foundation for building that conscious mindset with your company? Not only from an employer-employee, but from a company to, con- to customer model? Richard, I think it starts with compassion. You know, what we did at Opportunity Lab and what we encourage our clients to do is call up your customers, call up your employees. How are you doing? What can I do to help you? And we saw that that really, and, and this was not about you need to buy anything. It's, not, it's not, nothing to do with the business. It's all about how are you managing through this? Do you need any help? Is there anything we could support? And so when somebody feels cared about, not because you are expecting something from them, but just because you actually do care about them, that connects on a whole different level. And then they start to ask for things, some of which you do have to offer them and some of which you don't. And maybe you refer them to another business or another service, or maybe it's free. Maybe you can give something that, that doesn't cost them. I think it's being in conversation about what really matters to that person at that particular time, whether it's a customer or whether it's an employee or whether it's a colleague or what have you. Hey guys, 
Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. That makes a lot of sense. And you said something interesting. Maybe you don't have the product or service that they need, but I know a lot of businesses are finding like-minded other entities who may be the chocolates in their proverbial peanut butter where they can you know, team up and, and do that. So it certainly makes a lot of sense. I want to take a step back because I know your book, Culture of Opportunity, is, is a best-selling title. When did you decide to write that? What was the impetus for doing that? Well, Richard, the impetus was we were using the culture opportunity process to serve a handful of clients that we felt we deeply cared about and they resonated with this process. But we felt the process was so powerful and it was so different than any other strategy process that we had ever seen. We wanted to share it with more people and we wanted to give the tools to companies that maybe couldn't afford a consulting firm, even though we think our prices are very affordable, but we wanted to give it away for free and show some basic things that you could do without necessarily hiring anybody to do it. So it was really about scaling this culture of opportunity process. And the process really begins with defining what are the results that you are going to feel pride in? What results are you want to measure your company by? You have to start with that. Like, what, is, what does your company stand for in 2020 or 2020? What are the results that you are already committed to, whether it be to your employees, your customers, your shareholders? And measure them and make sure that there's a balance between financially driven as well as purpose-driven results. And no more than five. More than five people can't remember, and it's, it's trying to do too much. Then we look at who is your opportunity team? Who are the people that are going to take you to this next level of sustainable growth? And they always have to be a mix of people inside your company and outside your company. So the people inside your company need to be strategic. They need to have meet diverse, not all white men of a certain age. Got to be people of color. They've got to be women. They've got to be people from different parts of the company, all different ways of thinking and being in the world. And there's got to be people outside the company that will challenge your current beliefs. There's got to be a, and a culture of opportunity has to constantly challenge the way we do things, even if we are doing well, because in order to be a culture of opportunity, you have to constantly innovate, trying to do better for your customers, trying to do better for your employees, your communities. And but to do that, you have to challenge what you have done in the past. What are some tangible ways that you can constantly challenge? How do you do that? Well, you're looking for ways that other companies are serving customers that you find exciting and innovative, even if they're not in your particular industry. So, you know, copying is uh, the greatest form of flattery. And I say copying, I don't mean violating intellectual property. I mean, emulating something that is great. 
So for one of our clients who has a really phenomenal inbound call center where they serve clients who see something they like on their website and they need some help in buying it, in the product help, they need various information about when they're going to get it and so forth. I had them look at Zappos because Zappos changed the way people buy shoes on the internet, but they also changed the way people give customer service over the phone. And I said to our client, don't look at the way you've always done things and try to do it better. Look at where our customer is getting a unique experience where it, the service is so personalized. It goes in so much depth and it allows them to try certain things and send them back if you don't like it. And there's all kinds of other things that Apple does, which I won't go into right now. But it was, we're in the customer service business. We're not in the shoe business. We're in the business to delight customers and make them feel that they actually will enjoy and be inspired and informed by a call to our company. So I, I said to our client, use Zappos and find out other companies that are delighting their customers in all kinds of innovative ways. And let's see, can we borrow or adapt some of what they're doing to our company? I love that. And it's interesting. I know you said that imitation is the truest form of flattery, but it's interesting you mentioned Zappos because I... I I've talked to a number of companies who, even though they're selling a product of service, they consider themselves a transformation company, even though they might sell wellness products or you know, of the like. I mean, Zappos did redefine a vertical in the way that they, they approach things. So we've talked about the challenge. We've talked about constantly challenging yourself so that you can stay relevant, so that you can have fresh ideas of thinking. What are some other key things that a business should be doing so that they can continue the culture of opportunity within? Well, let me tell you something we're doing with a number of our clients that has yielded tremendous results in multiple ways. So when we helped our client, which is a New York-based a consumer electronics firm company is actually Adorama, which is a well-known brand in New York. We helped them move about 75% of their employees to work remotely, which they had never done before. We understood that we needed to help those employees stay connected, both on a mental level as well as on an emotional level, to make sure we were helping them deal with their emotional issues with working at home, social isolation. They have kids at home. They've got parents who are aging. They may have had some health issues and keeping them connected in a business sense to make sure that they had the information they needed about the business when they weren't actually physically in place. So we started with two questions. Well, three questions, actually. Where are you calling from? So we knew where everybody was and people could be connected by, hey, I didn't know, Richard, that you lived in Atlanta. Uh, John, I didn't know that you lived in North Shore of Long Island. Mark, I didn't know you lived in the west side of New York. And then the second question was, what is inspiring you? And the third question is, what is troubling? And so we would start the share labs, which is what we call them, with those three connected questions. And then when we do future share lab with the same department, we started asking them other questions like, um, what have you learned? What's the biggest learning you've had from going through this pandemic and everything else that's going on around you? And then we started asking them business questions. Is there one thing we could do to significantly improve our customers' experience? Is there one thing we could do to improve the way our business functions? And what was so fascinating, Richard, was 
our employees had answers that they were never able to share because there just wasn't a structure for them. And I believe that most of the innovations that happen in companies happen from within the company when we allow employees to give that voice. And Adorama is doing that now. And they've always done it, but this took it to a whole different level. Right? And now we are starting to do customer engagement focus groups with our departments to help them really articulate the ways we could serve our customers better. So it's asking employees very specific questions about their business, our customers, and so forth. And that was an extremely simple but very powerful way to find things that were already hiding in plain sight. And I assume that you guys have tracked the metrics of what happens to a company that just starts doing this. And I, and I know every circumstance is different, but overall, what have you seen in terms of bottom line, in terms of employee morale, turnover? What, what kind of things have, has the data shown from this approach? Well, from selected companies that we work with over selected periods of time, we've seen as much as 25% annual top line growth, 20% annual bottom line growth, reducing of employee turnover by 25 or 30%. Again, these are relatively small numbers because we deal with a very small number of clients each year. We, we tend to go deep rather than you know, have a large you know, battery of clients. But we've seen very significant numbers in terms of profitability, in terms of top line sales, in terms of employee retention. And we're seeing our clients attract top talent that they couldn't have attracted before because when they go through the interview process, they are touching these employees who are so passionate and they're hearing about what's, what's happening in these, this company. And we're treating them in a way that maybe some of the other employers that they've been interviewing with have not treated them in a more collaborative, collegial way. I absolutely love this. This resonates so strongly with me. I want to, I know this isn't coming out for a while, but I'm excited about it. I want to tease your your second book, which is something you're working on right now. Do you mind sharing us the premise of that and a little bit about it? Yeah, I'd love to, Richard. So it's called How the Light Gets In, a story of near death and the life that came after, which is about my depression in 2008 what happened to me, why it happened, and what happened afterwards. Um, so it's, it's fascinating, you know, when, when you write a memoir or, or a personal story about yourself, there's a tremendous amount of healing that goes in when you've got to dig deep into your past about why certain fears that you had happened in that level, that extreme level. You know, why the shame that I had when this money was stolen was so far more intense than I ever imagined that it would be. And it was something I had hidden from myself. And it was not pleasant to look at. It was, it was tremendously dark. But I had to understand that, that shame, which came from not, not being enough, feeling like an imposter, feeling like you know, I was only one step away from somebody finding me out. And, and so many people, I think, feel, you know, feel like this, but not everybody talks about it. That was a learning, and the, the whole process of writing at that level of depth is extremely healing, but also to do it in a way that is an interesting story and readable at, for somebody else who doesn't even know me is another different level of, of the craft of writing. Because a, a book cannot solely be therapeutic. A book has to be really the end, something that the readers will enjoy, will learn from, and will feel like they got their value out of the several hours that they, they spent 
with your book. Makes a lot of sense. You know, any time that you can take practical science, apply them to emotionality of a story, it certainly is going to resonate much more powerfully with the reader. So I, I'm looking forward to reading this. Can we can we put you on the spot here a little bit and tease when we think this is coming out? I'd be very happy if it came out at the end of 2021, but I, I, don't, I can't give you a release date. I'm not at that point yet, but my goal is to have that date sometime by the end of this year. That's Outstanding. That's what I'm working on. Outstanding. I, I, want, I want to say something else that it's really important, I think, for our listeners, is one of the misbeliefs that I had that led up to this depression was that I was alone in my dark feelings and in these painful thoughts. And that's kind of came from my childhood experience where I think my parents felt that they were alone. And when I realized I wasn't because of the people that supported me through that terrible period, and I began to understand the importance of interdependence that we do nothing in our lives alone. We don't go to the bathroom alone. We don't eat alone. I mean, people think that they're independent, but everything you do depends on someone else. It depends on having somebody to bring the food to the supermarket. It depends on the people who grow the food. It depends on all the things that we do. No matter even things we think we do alone, there's nothing that we do that doesn't depend on the earth being here for us, which we see obviously is we're having significant problems with. So once I disabused myself of the idea that I was alone, I realized I needed people and they needed me. And that's so important today that people, we have to realize we are interdependent and COVID is teaching us that. We're not going to get through COVID by thinking that we're just independent, we can do whatever we want. We have to be able to live in community with people and respect people, even if they differ from how we think about the world, find some way to have common ground so that we can live together. So that, that was one of the biggest insights in writing the second book was the importance of interdependence and the importance of reaching out and asking for help, even when it's uncomfortable to do it. And something that you do every day on the Daily Helping is offer help and being of service to people who might not have anybody else to help them. Just like when you were mentoring and tutoring the young people when you first we're figuring out what to do with your life after the car accident in your TED talk, you know, those were people that maybe nobody else had ever asked them that. Nobody else had ever reached out to them to give help. That's so sagely advice that you've just shared. And, you know, I, I think I've set myself up for this uh, because uh, we're at time. And as you know, I ask everybody who comes on our show, the biggest helping, and that is the one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with, I think you just dropped it on us. And that's okay. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to expand on what you were talking about if you want to. Yeah. So expanding on that, you know, from your TED Talk, you were talking about how the brain operates in the space of generosity. And when we are generous, it expands the flow of oxytocin and dopamine and other hormones and neurotransmitters in our brain. And it makes us feel good because it, it, it is good. And it's not like we're giving up something. We are giving of us ourselves and making ourselves the person that we want to be. I think we see in crisis over many centuries how people operate at their highest and best. You know, from Psychology, when I was in school, we were taught by you know, the, the, the Freudian model of psychology 
other models that individuals are inherently selfish and are inherently will do for themselves when they are pushed against the wall. And what we've seen is people are inherently, under most circumstances, good because they actually know on some genetic level that we are, we are interdependent. So at 9-11, which was another incredible crisis that I, that I went through, I saw people more generous, more willing to help. It was so incredibly inspiring. And I'm seeing that now in COVID. Not everybody, not every circumstance for sure. However, I, I think in crisis, people want to give because they want to feel part of the tribe. They want to feel that they have a place and a purpose in the world. So if you're asking for help, I would suggest don't think of it as you're burdening somebody, you're taking away somebody, you're giving somebody the opportunity to serve. And if they can't do it, they'll just tell you they can't do it. But maybe they can, and maybe they'll actually, like I think most of us enjoy doing it and feel like, hey, this was an opportunity for me to give of myself. and It makes me feel good. What a beautiful reframe that giving somebody the opportunity to serve. I know so many people because of pride or other, other reasons don't ask for help. That was reframed so beautifully. And I want to thank you for sharing that. Mark, tell us where people can find you online and where they can get their hands on Culture of Opportunity. So Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business and Age of Disruption is on Amazon, both in print as well as in Kindle. You can watch a lot of videos that I've done and a lot of podcast appearances at oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. I've got a lot of free content on there as well as some free assessments. If you want to get in touch with me specifically, you can contact one of my staff who will reach me at discover at oplab.com. And you know, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, although we do most of our communication through our, our website. Fantastic. And we'll have all of that in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. Mark, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on The Daily Helping today. It's been my pleasure, Richard. Thank you and thank you to your audience. Absolutely. And I want to thank the audience as well. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to us here at The Daily Helping. If you like this episode, go subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review because that's what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. Mm-hmm.